have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. 10-5, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hello, sports movie holics, and thanks so much for downloading the 14th edition of Scoring at the Movies. Ever since June 7th, we've been looking back at sports films, sometimes fondly and sometimes not so fondly. Caution! We will be spoiling this movie and probably lots of others. I'm the drunkard basketball fan who spends a lot of time face down in the woods, Ryan Ellis. And here's my stern, formerly violent basketball coach who's also my co-host, Chris D. Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. And I'm going to give you one last chance to tell me that you want to be here and do things exactly my way or you can get the hell out of here. I'm gone. All, all right. right. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this. Here. Today. Uh, we've done 13 episodes plus a few minutes. Now. And that's a wrap, people. <laughs> all right. I'm coming back. So, all right. That's, that's fair. We'll, we'll start the I'm drills. Breaking uh, stuff back. I really like the way you punch that caution, too. You really gave it the old hickory gusto and emphasis on that. I listen to other movie podcasts, and I've noticed they don't ever say that they're going to spoil the movie, which I guess maybe you should imply or should know about that, but... We always have. We should try doing one where we talk about zero plot points of the movie whatsoever and huh. just tangentially dance around the subject matter and see just how horrible that actually well, is. Well, that's film reviewing in a newspaper, for example. And I can't imagine... I had done that, not a newspaper, but just online. I have reviews like that, and I avoided yeah. spoilers usually. The other thing that Bev and I have done before lots of times, although it's been years, was what we called the Now Playing Project. And there were movies we had just seen that we reviewed. And we would talk about... Always two... We would talk about what we thought of it, and then we'd say, we'll do the spoilers at the end. So it'd be the movie, and then another movie, and then spoilers for both of them at the very end. You just drop a spoiler bomb right at the end. Yeah. We'll say, okay, if you don't want to hear what this movie's got for surprises at the end, stop listening now. That's fair. But it's tough to do a lengthy podcast or discussion without touching on any spoilers. Especially if you're trying to nitpick the content of it beyond just a general impression right? how do you do it for classic films especially the old ones say a star wars or apocalypse or, now or, or even hoosiers Dodgeball? and not yeah <laughs> well we did talk about the end of that movie right the controversial they shouldn't have won but they did anyway and this one certainly is probably most famous for i guess it's ending yeah and they're based on reality so we should talk very briefly speaking of dodgeball about the runs hits and errors i don't really have any there's a few on the website just minor <laughs> quibbles nothing big I don't need to really discuss that I think right we now we can both agree the dodgeball movie is virtually perfect and our review of it is certainly as perfect right right it's close yeah, okay close 95 percent perfect really dodge that okay i did correct some facts and if you want to see what they are then go to top100project.com so before we get into hoosiers what about your beer choice what are you pairing with the basketball classic I'm pairing a beer from Collective Arts, Ryan, a very well-known and, I think, much-loved craft beer, craft brewery, rather, from the Golden Horseshoe area of Southern Ontario. This one's called Jam Up the Mash, particularly fitting beer name for a basketball movie. Although this movie takes place in an era before the jam, before the slam dunk. <laughs> there is no dunking whatsoever in this movie. No, this is a pre-Lou Alcindor era we're talking about here. You'll see a lot of layups and a lot of good, solid fundamentals and ball movement, but not so many jams, unfortunately. But that's what we're going with today. Cracker open. There we go. I've got some ah. bourbon and diet here. Well, myself. you are the drunken co-host, so you got to up my alcohol. I'm much too sober. I've only had one and a half of these. you got more work to do if we're going to find you 
face down in your backyard later. Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper. Okay, in a nutshell with Hoosiers. History and civics high school educator professes love for teenage boys. Yep. <laughs> and his students, in fact. He is actually their teacher. A lot of them, they're in class one day, and you see maybe the whole team, but certainly most of that team, in Gene Hackman's class. Yeah, that fits. <laughs> I can't argue with that synopsis. Well, I mean to be implying what you think I'm implying, although that never does happen, but it's still fun to suggest. Well, it probably isn't fun to suggest. That, no, it? probably it's not fun sick. to suggest. Let's move on. Let's not go down that road. Yeah, the Rotten Tomatoes numbers. 88% of critics and 88% of audiences. Same number. Like this movie even now. Those are pretty great scores. Got a full release on December 12th, 1986, so that's one day shy of 32 years ago. So if this movie were a professional basketball player itself, it would now be sort of entering the twilight of its career in the NBA, you think? At 32? For some guys, maybe it's the peak. Yeah, I guess so. most well, athletes yeah, do. Peaking, and then you're sort of the slow decline of futility as you try to hang on to that glory. I'm way past that year. <laughs> You're still peaking, right? 12 years past that, in fact. Still uh, capturing softball championship after softball championship. Those have dried up in recent years. Oh, no. Okay. I won't prod that wound then. A few more details on Hoosiers before the conversation really gets going. It had a pretty small budget, but it was a nice size hit. It was 35th at the 86 box office. Karate Kid Part 2, Back to School and Color of Money, all sports movies in a way, in one way or another, out-earned this one, so they were the bigger hits. It's called Best Shot in Europe because they wouldn't know what a Hoosier is. Not even we really know what Hoosiers are, but it's just a nickname for Indiana people, I guess. Yeah, I don't think anybody actually knows really what the origin of that is. Their nickname, the school nickname, is Huskers. Which so makes it's not quite sense. the same word, but it's a similar word, so maybe that's where it comes from, some weird English thing, I don't know. I think one of the common urban dictionary-style explanations for Hoosier is that one of the Native American words for a type of corn is horsa, or something like that, okay. or hossa, or Anyway, I'm going to mispronounce whatever it is and explain it incorrectly, so I'm not going to sweat the details too much, but that it is like a long-term bastardization or evolution of that word, but that has been soundly debunked by anthropology professors and sociology professors in the States, so what it boils down to is nobody knows what a Hoosier was exactly when it was coined back 300 years ago, but it's stuck for people of that area of the U.S., it's become the state's nickname, I guess. I think Last Shot would have made a lot more sense in Europe or wherever they want to rename it because it is all about Merle's going to take the last shot and then they all make a thing, which we'll get into in a few minutes. All right, well, before we get into the end of the movie, what did you think of the whole movie? You listed Karate Kid Part 2, right? Yes. Or was it the first two. Part 2? All right, Back to the Future. Back and... to School. Because it had diving in it. That's why I said it's a sports movie of a sort. Oh, <laughs> you said Back to School. I heard Back to the Future, which would, I guess would have been 85, 85. the year prior. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm going to stick with Back to the Future. <laughs> and Color... We all prefer that one. <laughs> and Color of Money. I prefer all three of those movies to Hoosiers. Blaspheming. Which isn't saying that Hoosiers is a bad movie, but I have a lot of questions or misgivings about some of the directions that this movie took. Now, I think... Initially, the director, whose name I'll never remember... David Anspaugh. Thank you. ...had intended this movie to be way longer than it actually turned out to be in its final theatrical cut, and maybe had that or something close to that cut been what I actually saw, I would like it a little bit more. But similarly to how we were talking about Dodgeball, and it's funny to me that I'm comparing Dodgeball to Hoosiers in mm -hmm. any kind of way, but the underdog should not have won that game in Dodgeball. I'm fine with the underdogs winning in Hoosiers. I mean, that's the whole crux of the movie. You want them to win. Another Rocky story. 
Although he doesn't win, well, but you know what I'm saying. The underdog that even survives. Yes and no, in that this team is better than Rocky was a boxer when he survived against Apollo Creed. What are you saying there, Chris? I'm saying that Sylvester Stallone is a fantastic actor and thespian, but not necessarily the best-known boxer at the time of Rocky. I could just take it like Homer Simpson, just keep punching me, punching me, <laughs> punching me, and then Apollo get tired out. Just call him the Brick Hit House. <laughs> but this Hickory Huskers team when Gene Hackman shows up on the scene, is known to be a good basketball team already the prior year. Although a very small school, right? They have like 68, Four. 64. My school was even bigger than that. And I went to a school with something like 300 or so kids. The 64 thing is mentioned later on, and it's on the IMDb goof section, but not a goof. Somebody points out, but wait, the one guy says there's 64 boys, and then later on it's a school of 64, but that refers to the pool of talent, which is only boys. You can't count girls in that. Yeah. So if you think basically it's double, logically, then you've got 130-ish students in the entire school. And yeah, mine had more than that. We actually were a pretty talented school in sports and drama and other things for that few people. And they've got the same thing here, just dumb luck, I guess. What do they do to the corn and the water in this area because they're very talented? At things. I think the whole crux of the movie is the fact that basketball, even in the 50s, is a bit of a religion among small-town Indiana, right? And you never see any tryouts or anything. The assumption, I guess, is that if you want to play, you can play. That was my school, too. Yeah, cause I was on the team, and I was never good enough to be on the team. I was a manager like Ollie, though, the one year. I called him manager, but the so coach you, just called me. You were the, the, boy the half man on the end of the bench? <laughs> And I played in my last year. Not much, because I wasn't good enough. I actually am Ollie. Now, the irony is that I think his name is Wade Schenk, the guy who plays Ollie, was the best of them as an actual basketball player. But he has to play the bad basketball player. And then he's great at free throws. Well, I was like him. I was great at free throws, but pretty much nothing else. Well, pretty good shooter in general, but I was not good at passing. I didn't have any good court awareness, and I certainly wasn't very fast. I didn't, <laughs> didn't have stamina. So I'm, I am Ollie. Again, you're describing the equivalent of Homer Simpson as a boxer. <laughs> no stamina, can't punch, no awareness of the ring, but damn, can he take a but hit I to the could, face? I could throw an alley, what do you call it? Not an alley, granny shot. I can a do granny a granny shot. shot. I was going to ask you, did you take your free throws by like the little, like, I tried between that. the I legs? I get close. No? I don't know why you'd ever want to do it that way. No, it's damn hard. I think you just want, what's the idea? It's a softer shot, a higher arc. Shaq tried it at one point. I don't point. think we ever seen anybody else ever take a free throw in this movie, though, other than that one scene. No one ever seems to get fouled. Well, then again, no. there's the one that starts the brawl, but we don't see the shots that come out of that that would have had to. Somebody had free throws that came out of that, but we don't see them. You do see some fouls. What's interesting, though, is there are some fouls that are called, and maybe I misinterpreted this in the movie in the latter stages, because I think it was either the semifinal or the final itself. There are fouls called, and they would take one free throw. And then later in the movie, Ollie gets fouled, and he says, two shots. He was in the middle of shooting it. He was so in the middle of shooting why. So I don't well, know. then again, if you get fouled or not shooting, but the team is past their maximum, then you get one shot. If you make it, you get another one. Maybe that's not the way it was in the 1950s, but that is the way it's been since I've been playing basketball. Or, well, <laughs> I've been playing basketball a long time when I played in high school. And I think that's the way it is in the NBA. In the NBA, if you're past the foul limit as a team, you just get the two shots. It's always two shots, unless it's a That three. must have changed, because I'm sure that it was one, and if you miss it, then the ball's just live. And if you put it in, then you get another shot. That's never been the way in professional ranks. Since that rule we was are instituted? going to have to agree to disagree on this one, because <laughs> I think you're incorrect. Also understanding that college and high school rules have long differed from NBA and rules, And this right? is 66 years ago? There's a lot of interesting stuff in this movie that is certainly historically accurate. There's some stuff that's not historically accurate, but I'll cut them some slack for that. Things like, you'll see no three-point line, right? Because right. that wasn't a thing yet. Mm -hmm. There's no shot clock yet. The key, as it's called, right? The painted area that you can't stand and defend exists... Only very recently, 
it actually looks like the key after which it's named. You'll see modern basketball courts, and it's essentially like a big arch shape almost, right, okay. that's filled in. In this one, it's a circle, and then underneath it is a narrow strip that looks almost like a key. So that's that, when, they do, when they do the picket fence, they're allowed to just stand there for what must be past the three seconds, must, I guess. Yeah, they're standing outside of the very narrow colored paint at that point. Okay. They did a really good job, I think, of portraying an old-timey style of basketball, like I said, complete with lack of dunks or anything like that. And also that. lack of black people playing the sport. Up until, until the finals. The finals. <laughs> Which was interesting to see. I did think it was actually interesting that there were some black players in the final. Mostly. Yeah. The other team has a few white guys, but it's mostly black kids. Yeah. Given the era, I mean, this is pre-civil rights, right? 1952? Well, it's also based on a real final. 1954 state final in Indiana. Milan Indians, so that would be our team, the Hickory Huskers, but Milan Indians beat the Muncie Central Bearcats 32-30. to The final in the game in the movie is 42-40, to so 10 more points. And every basket must be depicted because we see so many points be put yeah. in there, right down to Jimmy's last shot, which would have been a three-pointer had they had a three-point line. He is way out there when he shoots that ball. Yeah, you can really tell that this is the pre-shot clock era just by the scores, right? Because I don't know what length of half they're playing or quarters basketball started out at 15 minutes a half and then went to 20 minutes a half and eventually it went higher really oh half sorry. half i heard you say and quarter. at the professional level obviously now it's 12 minutes per quarter and it's changed through the years at this point i don't ever think we see a clock set up to start the game where the clock hasn't been running down so i don't know exactly how many minutes they're playing but 32 30 42 40 and you're right we see a lot of baskets and a lot of frantic action so they're showing everything that happened they're showing everything <laughs> And Jimmy scores pretty much all their points, too, by the looks of it. It's funny that the hometown Indiana style of play must have been a run-and-gun style because coach, was it Dale? Norman Dale. Norman Dale. Norm. Call me Norm. Yeah, Gene Hackman, when he shows up on the scene, he tries to implore to his team, you will pass the ball four times before Mm -hmm. taking a shot. And I think there's actually been coaches in recent memory, at least like in my adult memory, so let's say 10 or 15 years that have done similar things in the NBA to try to get their team to share the ball a little bit. And it never works out well. And it doesn't work out here either. The one guy, Ray, just goes ahead and shoots and gets benched for it. He drives the play, what, twice? Takes a shot, makes both shots, and then gets benched. Mm -hmm. And the Huskers field four players rather Mm -hmm. than put him out on the floor. My team's on the floor. Yeah. I love the look on Ollie's face, too, because he's already on the court and he doesn't want to be there because he knows he's not good enough. And then suddenly he's one of the people that's undermanned and he's just shocked. It's a great little scene there. We never see that happen again, so maybe the point is supposed to be, I'm going to prove my point to you guys right now. And then, yeah, he yells at them in the end of the game, do you want to be on this team or not because I'm the law? Yeah. Leads into my favorite character in the whole movie, although Gene Hackman is one of the great actors of all time, one of my favorite actors of all time. And I will say, he's very strong in this film. Hackman is very good. His character, I don't know how much I like the character. I don't know if you're supposed to like no, the character. No, like is a strong word for this character. He's a questionable... His whole vague backstory is supposed to be... He punched a kid. ...questionable character, yeah. right? So, anyway, I interrupted you. You are going to talk about... My favorite guy on the team, because it'd be easy to say Jimmy. I like Ollie a lot, because I am Ollie, but it's Merle. <laughs> I'm getting you that t-shirt, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I am Ollie. No, Merle. He's the one that says when they all talk about why they want to win the game... I want to win it for all the little schools never a chance to get here, which apparently was his real feelings about that. So Kent Poole is his name. He always does what the coach wants. He's also very talented, but he's also a leader. He's also the one that comes up to Ollie during the whole thing when he's doing the free throws and didn't know the groom so small down on the farm. He walks up as soon as that's said and said, don't worry about that, just concentrate on what you're doing, put it in the hole. He is a great leader. He's a good player. And all these actors, not actors, they're basketball players first yeah. and actors second, are pretty believable. They've got a fair amount of dialogue, other than Jimmy. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. 
But what do you think about that? Do you know who I'm talking about with the names? Because I've seen this movie so many times, I know most yeah. of the names now pretty well. And by the way, one more thing I'll say before you answer that is that all these actors, other than the guy who plays Jimmy, Maris Valenus or Velianus or however you pronounce his name, pretty much never acted before since this. Maris did maybe a couple other movies. None of them did much. None of them took off into acting. No. Sorry, oh, David Niedorf, I should say. He's Everett. Dennis Hopper's father. Oh, okay. He was in Platoon the same year as this, and he was in Bull Durham a couple years after this. So a couple of big sports movies and then a big Oscar winner like Platoon. But didn't have a long career. Most of their actors were not actors. So your right. favorite player, your favorite, whatever. Is it Jimmy or is it somebody else? I'll start by just like talking about the kids in general on the team. By the way, I would not have known who Merle was had you not described the character. You know who I'm talking about now? I know exactly what you're talking okay. about, but just saying Merle, I wouldn't have known which of the players. Because the only players I know by name are Ollie. Mm-hmm. and Jimmy. The other, what, four guys on the team? Five guys on the team? It ends up being eight in total. Once the two guys that bail, the one, of course, comes back, and that guy's father becomes an assistant coach. Yeah. And then it's one of the deleted scenes. You talked about that. I actually cut off your thoughts about why you don't like the movie, and we can get back to that in a second. But the other guy apparently comes back, and it's just a deleted scene. You just have to assume he did. Because in that game where my team's on the floor, there's only six of them, I guess, in yeah. total. But then as the season goes on, there's eight. I was wondering exactly that as I was watching the movie because of those two guys bailing. And like you said, mm-hmm. the one is brought back by his father. Yeah. So that made sense. The other one just shows up in a the scene other one never is just, Yeah, it's just on the bench at one point later in the movie during a game. And you figure, oh, I guess he also sort of ate crow and came back himself. And he's a really good player. He's the one that's dribbling the ball out. And I think it's the semifinals before they get to the finals. So he's a good player in his own right. And of course, Jimmy's the eighth guy. So anyway, back to your point. The kids themselves actually did, I thought, a reasonable job. Because my understanding of things was that they did essentially a, a large casting call. I don't know whether it was in Indiana specifically or whether it was countrywide, but they wanted people that were age-appropriate who could carry a little bit of dialogue, but obviously must have had to have some basketball ability as well to portray the sport. It makes sense, because this movie leans so heavily on the actual game. Not just the playing of it, but describing the drills and everything that goes into a basketball game. That you can't have actors like you had with Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes. Those two guys were in the movie for their charisma, not necessarily for their basketball skills. And the director had to cut the movie around their lack of skills in some respects. Well, but we said Woody's a good basketball player. We knew that. Wesley apparently wasn't, but right. you could have fooled me. It looks good to me. You know, exactly, because the camera work makes it look that way. In this one, you've got full court shots of a game happening and the pick and rolls and the point guard bringing the ball up the floor. And there's certain things that, in order for it to look organic, you can't really fake, I don't think, too well with camera work. So from that perspective, I thought the kids were fine. If I had to pick a favorite, it was the actor that you were just talking about who later appeared in Bull Durham and Platoon. Who Everett played. then, so yep. Hopper's son, okay. And for one singular reason, because it would have been Ollie... He was the one to me that demonstrated the most sort of charisma and emotion and all that up until the final game because they have different moments like you talked about Merle wanting to win it for all the small schools. Ollie doesn't play in the final game and neither does the big guy who's the son of the preacher. They don't seem to have played a single minute in that final game. But up until that point, at least he had demonstrated some emotion and humanity that the other players hadn't really demonstrated all that much. But Everett had that scene going into the final game with Dennis Hopper. Maybe shy of Field of Dreams? Maybe Rudy. That's the kind of moment in a movie that almost makes me well up and tear up. It didn't? It didn't. Not quite. <laughs> it did, didn't it? Maybe a little bit, Ryan, okay? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. They did a really good job, both of them, of really playing it in a believable way. There's no breaking down and hugging it out and tearfully embracing each other because that wouldn't have been true to the characters. There were two characters with a lot of baggage between them. 
And obviously Dennis Hopper's character at this point is drying out. He's in rehab and he's locked in a hospital for all intents and purposes against his will because he wanted to go to the game and he can't. Hopper said that originally the screenplay was that he was going to go to the game. They let him out for that sake. And Hopper himself, who'd been through rehab just before this, said, no, that's not the way you do this kind of thing. You stay in there. And that's also touching that he's listening in the hospital and he's talking to the nurse. No school's ever been, no school this small has been this far before. And then he's happy when they won. So you can cut to other people as well celebrating, which is probably easier in the editing suite. But he's right. That's a better touch. And you do have this moment between these two people where I'm going to leave and you can't be part of this because of what you're going through now. So that was probably more effective that he's not with them on the bench anymore. And he had his moment earlier. That's one of the things, too. You talked about Ollie being one of your favorites, and I agree with that. Strap is the preacher's son. He scores a couple points. The Lord got into me. So almost everybody in this team has a moment. The best players are always getting moments, but even the guys who are on the bench. Strap is the guy that always has to get down on a knee and say yep. a prayer before mm-hmm. every game. Was it before Ollie's taking his free throws in the semi that he leans over and tells Strap, make it a good one? Yeah, because Strap won't let him go. As he's praying. Because yeah, <laughs> they all do the hands-in thing, and then Strap is still <laughs> holding on, and well, Jimmy and Ollie can't get up to go <laughs> on the court. Make it a good one, Strap. Gene Hackman, to my interpretation of things, always tolerated his character, anyway, always tolerated the presence of the preacher in the dressing room and all the praying. Yeah, he's not religious. But you think. can sort of see him standing in the background, just letting it happen and waiting for it to be over. So for him to kind of lean in and take every ounce of help that he can get, even if it's a prayer to something he doesn't necessarily believe in, I thought that was a really cute character moment. Yeah, they don't ever stress it. He doesn't talk about it with Barbara Hershey and say, I'm not religious, but here I am in Bible no. Belt country. He probably doesn't have any of those kinds of feelings, but he respects that they do. He even says to Shooter, you can't be around these boys while you're drinking, which is probably a good policy with any kid, but especially these Bible Belt type kids. That's kind of why that moment with Shooter and his son also rang so true to me as well. Is Shooter wants this so badly for two reasons, right? He has this broken relationship with his son on a personal level, but he also has the only thing, apparently, I don't know what he ever did to support himself or his family in the past, but obviously he was a big basketball junkie, whether that was at a professional coaching level of some kind. I don't think so. He was a player himself by the sounds of it. I thought so too. Probably in his high school days and as well. And he knows so much about that game. Yeah, he he cl- probably knows more about basketball than even Norman Dale does. Yeah, he clearly follows every detail of what's happening in the state. So he wanted so badly his son to succeed, the school to succeed. He wanted to be there and he wanted to repair the relationship with his son. All of that hinged on him being able to dry out. He wasn't able to of his own accord. So here he is in the hospital, and that's why that was so gut-wrenching that he couldn't go. But I do agree with you that it played better that way. It would have been a real cop-out to have him show up at the game, because that adds that emotional weight for Everett to want to win it all the more, knowing his dad is listening and rooting for him and telling everybody in the hospital about it, but can't be there himself. And I also thought it was a nice growth moment for Everett to swallow his pride a little bit and recognize the struggles his father is going through, because up until that moment, he had only really displayed disappointment and disgust with his father's antics and the diner earlier but did you notice his face though when shooter has to take over the team and fails to and then later on when he does come through and he has the picket fence play and they win it's because of his call but when he fails to step up you see and i don't think they ever focus on it but everett's face is okay is he gonna do it he's gonna do it isn't he and then that's a sweet thing it's not just my dad's a screw up yet again it's more about maybe this time oh no no he wants it shooter had that opportunity and broke down That's the kind of performance that led me to like that character so much. And so when it actually comes down to them meeting in the hospital and Everett saying, you know, when you're better, when you beat this, we'll get a house. We'll get a house together. We'll be a family together. And the wife's still alive because Shooter's still got a wedding ring on 
And it sounds like he got kicked out. It's not that she died or any of those kinds of things. Oh, no, no. There's no implication she died. So it's... Everett's probably living with her, and he's yeah. saying, I'll live with you. That's yeah, pretty cool. I'm still here for you kind of thing. And then they don't ever hug. They don't even shake hands. There's an understanding that the olive branch is there. And yeah. I thought Hopper played it very well as well. He doesn't tear up. He doesn't cry. But there's something in the facial expressions of his character. He recognizes that he hasn't lost everybody that meant something to him because of alcohol and there's opportunity for him to get his life back right that i thought he just played subtly but very well and then as soon as his son walks out the door and is gone again he's back to being the kind of manic sports yeah. fan and no team in the history has ever yeah. gone this far i don't know that scene for me is probably the pinnacle of the movie i thought okay. the emotional pinnacle anyway to me it, it even outweighed the climactic game and everything that came after my favorite scene has always been in the meeting when they want to fire him the really? night before, it's supposed to be, I think, the night before, because it's a Saturday meeting and a Friday game. Will they do the vote? Yeah. Well, we are going to disagree Well, about Bev and this. I watched this together, by the way. <laughs> Bev had never seen this movie before, and I needed to see it for our podcast at a certain point. I was going to run out of time if I didn't watch it that one night. And she said, fine, I'll watch it. I've never seen it before. I thought she would rain shit all over it, and she didn't, which I was happy to see and hear. But when that scene came up, she predicted what Jimmy would do, which I guess has become cliche. Maybe it was cliche in 86. For some reason, that's always gotten me. And here's, I think, why. There's a couple of reasons why. Okay. One is the night before, Norm gets kicked out of a game yet again. And they already didn't like him, and now it's, this guy's so volatile, he gets kicked out of every game. He's not on the bench for the whole game with our kids. Was, so he's making his case even worse, which that, I think is important. Was that the game where he got himself intentionally kicked out? No, no, out that was later. That, that was, was later. later. Okay. So then, the night of the meeting, he speaks his own piece. That doesn't seem to make any difference. And we've already seen that Barbara Hershey's character, Myra, has this information on him. She goes up there. She could say, he punched a kid, and this is why he's here in the first place, because he can't get her job somewhere else. Then he absolutely would have been gone, and that would have been understandable if they'd voted him out for that reason. But then when Jimmy comes in, yeah, maybe it's cliche, but here's why I like that, for a couple reasons. One, all the players, the reason why this is even happening, these, what is it, seven people, six people? I guess it's six. No, it's seven. Seven at that point. Right, because Jimmy's the eighth. Yeah. This is a nice touch by Anspaw, the director, and the writer Angelo Pizza, who, by the way, combined to make Rudy, which is a movie you like a lot, too. Maybe we'll cover that one of these days. I'm going to be interested in that, to be honest with you, because this had Rudy-esque vibes as far yeah. as like the feels you're Why supposed to Why wouldn't it? Those guys involved in both movies. So the way I reacted to this makes me wonder how I'm going to react to Rudy. You I'm might ha- feel differently. Having, I might, having yeah. not seen it for quite a while at this okay. point. But anyway. So in Jimmy Comes, first of all, I love that he hands the basketball to... The manager, the water boy, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Which is a kind of a passing of the torch kind of thing. Not that Ollie's the heir apparent, but hold this ball. It's an inclusive thing. It might be a little bit condescending. I think of it as an inclusive moment. And Jimmy has apparently only four lines of dialogue in the whole movie. Three of them are in that scene. And then the one at the end of, I'll make it. We'll talk about that later on. But when he comes in and he does the whole sort of, I want to play ball again. Yeah, I figured it would happen when we got rid of him. Chelsea Ross, who Bev and I have covered now. <laughs> Just recently in Simple Plan, which we did only a few days ago, you and I have seen him in Major League. Who was he, he in Major League? He's the old pitcher. Yes, of course he is. Of course he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the look on his face. So yeah, maybe it's cliche, but I love the way that works out. Because you don't realize that Jimmy is watching what the coach is doing and liking it. They show Jimmy watching games and seeing what's going on, and you don't realize, oh, he's buying into this. It's not that I don't want to be part of that. I think it's played pretty well myself. I also love the touch that Hackman doesn't smile when it's the, if he goes, I go thing. Because it'd be so easy for the coach to think, oh, yeah, I'm in now. It's almost like he's confused. And also, another touch, too, when they announced the vote, it was 68 to 45 to dismiss Norm before Jimmy said what he did. And then, of course, they do the revote, and it works out. <laughs> but that's pretty close, considering how much they hate him. But that ultimately reminded me of, and this just goes back to how much Simpsons I watched, and I know you've watched a lot of Simpsons. Oh, yeah. Some union meeting in the Simpsons, and all for me, all against 
me in the me. back. <laughs> just like the one lone voice. Let's get him, fellas. <laughs> it sounds so pathetic when you get all the like the rousing yays in favor of the coach once Jimmy says that's the only person he'll play for. And then you get the two or three lonely little voices when they ask for the nays. You just hear, nay. But that's a touch I like, too, because one of the people that says nay is behind Myra, Barbara Hershey. This old guy looks like he's about 75 years yeah. old. And he's looking around as he's saying it like, well, is everyone still with me? Nay. He's not oh. even sure of himself anymore yeah. because they wanted this team to win so badly and they want Jimmy to play so badly that, okay, if they want this coach... And they seem to love him by the end of the movie. Not even the end of the movie, the middle of the movie. All of those homers, including Chelsea Ross's character. Yeah. Which is a Fairweather fan thing. And I think it's a very accurate touch about any level of sports, whether it be pro or all the way down to high school. So this scene and a lot of others in the movie, why I wish I would have had an opportunity to watch the longer cut of the movie is because I feel like there's scenes interspersed throughout here that would have given us a lot more context for the character's motivations. And they would have, for me anyway brought some of these scenes to life a bit more. Okay. And this is one of them, because I don't understand why Jimmy takes this stance. Okay, well, let's go over his character, what we know. He's got no parents. Myra takes care of him. I understood that he had... The coach is a father figure. He had died last year. Jimmy was playing. They were 15 and 10, so they're a pretty good team. But then the coach dies, and he doesn't want to play unless it's that coach. Right. Now, we never hear him say any of these things. It's just what Myra says, so obviously they've had a conversation. But what's repeated to us over and over and over through the movie is that from Myra primarily, right? Mm-hmm. Is that he's not going to play. He won't play. And yeah. the coach keeps saying, fine, I don't care. Yeah. He even goes up to Jimmy and says, when Jimmy's shooting hoops out in the backyard. I like that scene too. That's a good scene. I think that's a really good example of Gene Hackman's character. By the way, you mentioned that he had that, not really smug, but maybe a little bit smug expression. Hackman, you mean. Hackman yeah. during the vote when he's eyed in by the crowd on second Well, it's vote. before they take that vote. It's just that Jimmy says, if he goes, I go. And everyone does the rubble, 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 rubble. And they cut to, not really even a close-up, but they show Hackman's face, and he's almost like he's nonplussed. It's not like he's impressed. It's not like he's unhappy. Why would he be unhappy? But he doesn't have a big shit-eating grin either, which is a really nice touch. But that's the attitude he's taken from the first scene of the movie right through the end towards the town in general. This podunk town, these townies don't really understand a damn thing about the world, and I've been at war for the last 10 years. Yeah, he was a Navy man, yeah. Yeah, during World War II. So he'd seen everything. The first interaction he has with the town at large is he shows up at the barbershop to talk to some of these townies, and they ask him, what do you think about man-on-man versus zone? Because this team can only play zone, and he basically listens to them for about 90 seconds and then says, fellas, thank you, I'm leaving, and Mm -hmm. then walks out. That's the attitude he takes towards them throughout. That first practice, that same character, Chelsea Ross, is running the team in the absence of the coach, and he's just having them scrimmage, 20 minutes on, 10 minutes off, and Hackman basically tells him to get lost. He's not the coach anymore. He doesn't care what he has to say. And time after time after time, he displays essentially that level of condescension, I suppose, almost towards the attitudes of the town folk. Might be laid on a little thick, and I think Bev seemed to feel that way. And when she said that to me when we were watching the movie, I thought, okay, maybe she's got a point about but that. But I don't... You think that, there should be more of that? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm not saying there should be more. I'm not saying there should be less. I understand that attitude when you think about what we know of Gene Hackman's backstory, right? That he was a college coach and by all accounts, a fairly well-known and successful one up yeah. until the point where he had a disagreement with his best player and slugged him for some reason. And I wish we would have learned a little bit more about his backstory because I felt like the nebulous nature of his history didn't really tell us a lot about why he showed up here just like the principal owed him a favor well, one thing i never picked friend. up i've seen this movie so many times and i didn't really pick up on this before is that cletus who's the one who hires him is the principal i guess i took it to be the case sheb yeah. woolley is the actor who plays him they mentioned they knew each other before yes. i haven't seen you in a long time so he hires him over the phone by the way sheb woolley that actor 
He's the guy who did the Wilhelm scream. Really? Yeah. The, <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> We've heard it in a thousand movies. Star Wars did it first. Well, they yeah. didn't do it first. They adapted it first from some old Western. But he mentioned that they knew each other from before, so that's why he comes in there. And I don't know if he knows why Norm's available to coach, period. And that's the thing, right? Because there's so much flack taken by Norm from the townsfolk about why he's there. Well, you know, this guy must really owe you big. I don't even need to know exactly what it is that the principal, or what we assume to be a principal, owed the coach to bring him in there. I just yeah. want to know a little bit more about their connection. Did they know each other in college? Like, was he a professor maybe at this well, college? Where he was he a Navy man? Maybe was he, he a saved, Navy man? Saved him in the war, maybe. Maybe. Just give me a little bit. But anyway, all that to say that I understand Hackman's attitude towards the townsfolk, and I understand why he reacted the way he did in the town meeting, and I agree with you, it was a good touch. But what I keep coming back to is what about that would attract Jimmy to suddenly change his mind and stick his neck out for Hackman at this meeting? Okay, the first thing I would say is that he probably misses playing. It could be one of those okay. FOMO type things. I want to play this game again. The team is playing mediocrely, but I see potential here. But then why I will only play for him? Well, maybe the idea would be if it falls back to Chelsea Ross being the coach again. That character just doesn't like the character that Chelsea Ross is playing and well, doesn't other, want to play for him? There are several coaches on this team through the movie, if you think about it. Obviously, Norm is the main coach the whole time. But then Cletus is an assistant at first, he has a heart attack or something. Is he an assistant? I thought he was just at the game. He was on the bench at first. But I think he was just there watching, is what I took No, but he was on the bench with them, so he's supposed to be an assistant, I would say. So Wit's dad becomes a coach through most of the movie. And of course, Shooter. And by the way, did you notice that at the end of the movie, when they show the picture with all the guys standing there with the trophy, the players, and Norm, None of those coaches are in the shot. Why did none of the assistant coaches get to be in the shot? Yeah. Especially Witt's dad. He's always loyal to Norm when he joins the team, which is obviously pretty early on in the season. And he's never not a coach at that point. Shooter is and then isn't, and Cletus is and then isn't. Yeah, Seems no, a little no, bit credit, no credit given at <laughs> why all. Can't we, why can't we be in the picture? We were talking about why Jimmy would only play for... And you were talking about he misses the game, and I get that. He doesn't want to fall back necessarily one of the other assistants. You know what it comes down to is maybe it's just like you were talking about off the top of this point is that at this stage in 2018, we've had this moment time and time and time again. It's a bit of a cliched move for scriptwriters to pull. Honestly, I don't know if in 86 it was a fairly original I don't thought. Either. You know what? Maybe the scriptwriter didn't really have an underlying motivation in mind and there isn't one. And it's just a convenient plot tool. I just had another thought. Myra's around him all the time. Myra's coming around. She seems to be attracted to Norm from the beginning, even though they butt heads a lot. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe she's speaking him up. One of the things that would have been fleshed out more in the longer cut of this movie was the relationship yeah. between Myra and Hackman's character. I think it's fine the way it is, but there could have been more of it. Because she's another one of the ones yeah. that you criticized before for being in the movie. Not entirely, but mostly to be a love interest. Yeah, because she doesn't really serve a lot of purpose as it stands right now. It's nice to see Gene Hackman's character have some interactions with some of the townsfolk that aren't just sort of antagonistic and butting heads all the time because that's the bulk of his interactions. Because her mother is great, Opal. And they're both super fans. She's really I like that they're both at the games. They're not just people that are involved and then never go to the games. They're always there. That's a good point as well. And one of the things I really enjoyed about this movie is the depiction of small-town Indiana, small-town America, especially in the 50s, and I'm sure it's true now, too, whether it's football or basketball or other sports, these smaller communities really do care about the teams. It's not lip service. They're not being antagonistic for no reason. They deeply care about it. It's almost a second religion to them. It's almost something that I wish I could have experienced in another life, maybe, is to get that sense of uniting the community around a very specific thing, because we both have lived and grown up in the greater Toronto area anyway large communities by and large 
Yeah. And the Leafs are the big thing here. The Jays have been. The Argos, to a degree, maybe the Raptors right, but as well. It's mostly Leafs, though, I suppose. But even they are not as galvanizing a force as what's in this movie. You will not go to the barbershop to go chat with, like, 30 other people, random people from Toronto about the Leafs. Especially right? the coach of the team. Yeah, exactly. It's a very specific experience, a very specific time and place that this thing portrays very well. And whether I would actually like it or not, I don't know. But I thought it was a very cool thing to put down on film the way they okay. did. So to circle back to the Myra thing, maybe if they built out that relationship a little bit more and saw Hackman winning her over bit by bit, and not necessarily on a personal level, because the romance would have been expanded on, I'm sure, but even just coming around to his way of coaching and his view on the game and life in general. You could argue that when we see the action, that that's the same feeling all the super fans are getting. The ones who've been so critical of him become big fans of his, obviously, as the year goes on and then they get to the finals. Of course. And Myra and Opal as well. It could be a matter of they're connecting with him through basketball. Of course, they're connected with him in other ways, especially Myra and Opal and the boys. He works with the boys all the time, right up to the end where he says, I love you guys. But the only connection that we really truly see is through the sport. As you said, this is a movie with a ton of the sport in it. Rocky, we've talked about that so much in this podcast, but it is a big sports movie. doesn't have very much boxing in it for a boxing movie. Raging no. Bull has about 10 minutes, and they are number one and two in the sports category of the top 100 genres. By the way, we've now covered on this podcast between you, me, and Bev, all the top six, and this was fourth, Hoosiers was in that category. Raging Bull was number one, Rocky was number two, hmm. Bull Durham is in there, and I forget the list right now, Hustler is in there, of course. Too. Of course, yeah, yeah. When we get back to a few more Jimmy things, I don't know if I convinced you of why I think it's reasonable <laughs> he'd go back there, but we talked about the scene where Norm goes up to him and has all this talk, and he finishes up by saying, I don't care if you play on the team or not. Yeah. Jimmy never misses any shot he takes in that scene. And the actor, Maris, was talking about how I was not even listening to what he was saying. I was just concentrating on making the shots. The one time he misses is after he hears, I don't care if you play or not. Jimmy is the Princess Leia and Michael Myers of this movie because he rarely misses and he never speaks. Well, almost never speaks, at least. <laughs> so he's those things as well. And I think it's a really important moment when Norman comes up to him. But on the other hand, it's almost like a passive-aggressive thing to say, everyone's talking about you so much and I'm going to tell you, meh. Why are you even bothering at all? Except maybe he's trying to show the kid respect, and maybe that's another reason why. He's yeah. not going to bully me into playing basketball like the town folk probably always do. When he sees those super fans just going about life every day in that town, are they always on him? Jamie, Jamie, slap you on the back. you got to play. Come on. He's a rough coach. We don't like him. We'll get him fired. Then you'll play. You'll play. Yeah. And maybe the other side of it is a guy saying to him, I'm going to talk to you for two minutes, and I'm going to leave you alone and say, eh, play if you want to. And we don't see his thought process, Jimmy's thought process, but it could be a matter of saying, now I'm in. That is the one scene where I could actually see an argument to be made for him standing up for the coach. I still don't quite buy it. I just can't convince myself of it. But you're right. I think that perfectly describes what this kid's experience is in small town, is that he's getting harassed all the time. Because everyone recognizes he is the best player of a team that's like only six or seven deep without him that we talked about. They're not about. big, and they're not necessarily all that fast, but no. they work their asses off. He is the heart and soul of the team, and the town knows that, and the town is just 100% super fan. That's his life. And I think you're right in saying that Gene Hackman's character is going there for two minutes, just understanding that this kid's probably hearing this even more than he is, even more than the coach is as the new guy, and saying, listen, whatever you hear, I don't care if you play one way or the other, do what you want, I'm out. And he is his teacher because you see Jimmy in yeah. either history or civics, whatever it is that Norm's teaching in that class. He's in that class too. Ollie's the one standing up delivering some kind of report. Yeah. yeah so Jimmy knows Norman in some kind of way. They're not perfect strangers, certainly. And you know what, for all of my perceived condescension that Gene Hackman shows towards the townsfolk and their provincial attitudes of things, 
He also clearly understands their relationship to the sport and the team. And he understands what it means to the town. He understands what it means to the kids. And he understands there's not a lot else going on here for them. So as a motivation for going to speak to Jimmy, I think it makes sense. But it also speaks to the fact that he does care about the town, but he also cares about the kids. Would he still tell them, I love you guys, if they weren't about if to If they were the 10 final? and 15 rather than yeah. whatever the record is? I really think he would. Well, he does have that speech before the finals, which is if you put your heart and soul to everything you're doing and try your absolute best, then I don't care what the scoreboard says, we're going to be winners. Yes. Friday Night Lights is a movie that's very similar to this, right down to the whole community thing that's obsessed with a high school athletic program. In that one, they've got a lot more money, and it's also more modern. This is set in the 50s. That movie's set in the 80s or early 2000s or whatever the hell it is, yeah. but it's set more modern at least. And they're probably even more obsessed than the basketball town is. But in both cases, the coaches, great actors, Gene Hackman, Billy Bob Thornton, have these speeches that say, listen, we want to win. We all want to do that. We'll be disappointed if we don't. But if we bust everything we've got and leave it on the court, how can we really be losers in that sense? Plus, I guess in both cases, those coaches know they're up against a better team that's probably going to whip them, yep. logically. And in one case, they win in this movie. Friday Night Lights, they lose, which is very smart. They should lose in that movie. They probably should have lost in this movie, but they're basing it on a real story, too. So yeah, maybe that's part of the whole deal. They finally come together. Well, they don't really finally. They come together much earlier in the story. A key moment is actually about violence. When Raid punches the guy in that brawl that happens that's right. in the little gym that's even smaller than the school gym I played in. Our school gym, when people play basketball, the black line on the outside, if you want to stand there and watch just as a student, you probably had an inch before your feet were touching the line <laughs> at the most. So their gym is probably even smaller than ours was, but ours was awfully tiny too. We didn't have an overhang, a little balcony type things yeah. like they seem to have there. I did love that tiny little gym with the cage in it. I also conversely love the reaction shots of the kids when they show up at the field house in Indianapolis. Great touch. Yeah. Right down to the whole measuring the court. Because the first time you see the movie is, what's he pointing out? That, yeah, it's this distance and this yeah, height. That was a fantastic The idea being that it's the exact same move. dimensions, whether yeah. it be this tiny gym we played in months ago, whether it be our own school gym, or whether it be this huge place. Yeah. My team got to a decent level at one point here in southern Ontario, and we played in, maybe not as big as the gym is that they play in the finals, but something like that, and I remember having the same feeling. I don't think I'd ever seen Hoosiers at that point, but that same feeling of, oh my God, and I knew I wasn't going to play. I was last man on the bench, but I was still there. I was on the team. I'm the Ollie, like I said, and to just witness that and think, we've been playing in sometimes pretty good gyms, but oh my God, <laughs> this is intimidating, but it's just a gym. It's just a floor. And in the yeah. end, the dimensions of the floor are the exact same. So let's talk about the finals because one of the things that's been talked about on a lot of websites, I've seen a few videos about this over the years, that are white heroes, pure white as it gets, playing mostly black kids who are probably inner city. And yet the irony is the movie like this now, the team would probably be black and we'd be rooting for them against the all white team. Glory Road, a basketball movie where it's based on a real story also. A black team that's put on the court that beats a white team. And the idea that battle racism through the whole film. But then it's also, they're just simply better than the white kids. Right. So it's an ironic touch and a weird touch in a way that we're actually rooting against the black kids. Even though <laughs> but they're not our guys. We don't know them. They're not villainized. No, What do you not. think of that? Because we've talked a lot about things that don't age well in some of these sports movies. Some of the stuff in Dodgeball, the sexual harassment. But what about the idea behind, it isn't racism, but these characters, and I should probably be careful here. All these kids we're watching, and a lot of the townsfolk, are probably <laughs> racist people in the 50s. What I think is probably safe to bet is that in middle America in 1951-52, in a town so small that your male high school contingent is only 64 people, ain't no way that is an integrated high school. If there's any visible minorities... We in, don't see any. Not in the town at all. And if any exist, they're probably going to a different school. So it makes perfect sense that these boys... Whether or not they would have or would not have been racist, I think is kind of immaterial because for the era 
the fact that that team was all white was probably accurate. But do we feel weird about watching that now and rooting against the team that no, I mean, a movie made now, we'd probably be rooting for the all-black team, mostly black team. I think that's applying too much of a modern lens to things. I was actually fairly impressed with the fact that there were any visible minorities on either team. And I know they said when the announcers are talking about the lead-up to the game, right, and they're talking about the two schools, and here's the David and the Goliath, and they're talking about, what's the other school, Southern something, South Central... The real name is the Muncie Central Bearcats. I forget what they're called. Okay. Well, let's, <laughs> no. just, let's just go with the Bearcats. The Bearcats, they say something like 2,600 students. It's right. a massive school. And in 1951, apparently an integrated school in Indiana, which is actually a pretty cool concept. You grew up with the Hickory Huskers in this movie. They're the ones that you know. Like you said, the other team is not villainized. They're actually talked up. The first time out of the game, the Hickory boys are saying, damn, these guys are good, they're incredible, right? we're getting our butts kicked, it's embarrassing. If they had played it in a more derogatory way towards the Bearcats, I could see being a little bit uncomfortable about it. But they it. never do. They never do. I think they're portraying it in a reasonably historically accurate way. How accurate, I can't speak to, but reasonably historically accurate in a reasonably objective way, in a way that's not insensitive. The coach is gracious, he shakes Norm's hand. We don't hear the dialogue because it's all just music at the very end. Yeah. Jerry Goldsmith's score. They seem like they're gracious with each other. Earlier on, we'd seen some conflicts between Hackman and other coaches. Not this and time. The other thing I will say is that I think if race had been made an issue earlier in the movie for any reason, right, if there had been a conflict in Hickory itself that had to do with race, maybe then you carry that kind of thing forward when you're looking at the final game. But the total absence of any sort of racial conflict or story arc whatsoever in this movie, I think you just have to look at it in sort of a colorblind way and just view it team versus team, school versus school. It'd also be weird. Goliath, right? It'd also be weird to criticize the movie for being racist or to be ignoring black people in a movie that's set in the fifties in a country school like this, because it's almost like saying, Where are the women in World War Two in the front lines? Okay, maybe that was a sexist thing that happened, but that's what happened. And that's what I'm so saying. So we should right? be honest to what reality was. For a movie like this, I think you want a reasonable level of historic accuracy. And I think they've done a good job of portraying that. It feels pretty accurate, It too. feels pretty accurate through the movie. And they actually shot it in Indiana, too. They didn't do it anywhere near Hollywood. I don't think anything about shot. Maybe the nope. interiors were, but I don't think so. I think they're all shot in Indiana. And that's what Butler Fieldhouse is actually where they shot the final game. Was oh, that it? Okay. Yeah. And at the end, of course, we get the big thing where they come back. Our heroes are all the way back. Jimmy seems to score almost all the points. It's weird, too, this domineering coach at the end is letting his team finally speak up. Can I say something? Yeah! I think Jimmy could take his guy if we set him up. And obviously Jimmy keeps on doing that because they do come back and at least make a close before they actually win. And at the end, Jimmy's rare line, he hadn't spoken since his scene, and he goes, I go, I'll make it. Which is a really great line, actually. It's, it's a, a simple line, line, but a really good one. And then again, the coach goes from, we're going to run the picket fence, and Merle's going to take the shot, or Ray, or whoever it was. I think it was Merle. Okay, fine. So, rest of you, get out of the way! <laughs> Hands in! Jimmy! Yeah. That's what they should have been saying. Which is strange because the whole concept is team, 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 team. And now suddenly it's all about just him. But then I suppose in basketball, more than most sports, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, or in this case, Jimmy, when one person's taken the last shot, which is what this movie should have been called in Europe, then <laughs> it can't be everybody. You can maybe pass it around, but you're not even going to really risk that. Like you said, yeah. no shot clock. So let Jimmy just take his guy almost halfway up the court and make this long shot and drain it. He Steph Curried that basketball more than probably any other big sport anyway is star driven you nailed on the head my biggest problem with this movie as a whole the ending well the whole jimmy arc but the ending in particular like you said gene hackman from hop and what gets him in trouble with the players initially and the town in general is his attitude towards this is a team we're five guys playing as one we're gonna win as a team we're gonna pass the ball four times before you take a shot that probably didn't continue though i think we're agreeing right 
He, that was proving a point. That was proving a point. We're going to break him down, build him back up. He even says he that. He says that, yeah. He's a military guy, and he says a line I'd said to Bev earlier on, then is actually is said in the movie. Oh, you're right. He says that very line. The specific strategy of passing the ball, obviously, you're right, it changes. And like you said, he does start listening to his players a little bit more. But it's all in service to the notion that you guys are a team. You're out there playing for each other, and you're going to win as a group, or you're going to lose as a group. That's what he's trying to convey throughout the movie. And his team is middling to fair until the Messiah player shows up, and not only does he bring them over the hump to get into the playoffs and take them to the final, but he's the guy that makes the last shot. I'll make it? That's a great line. What I would have wished is that the whole notion of Jimmy forswearing the team and saying, I'm not playing this year, I wish they had not included that. Have him be on the team, okay. have him be maybe distraught and not playing well, and Gene Hackman shows up. Oh, yeah, okay. And he wins him over through his coaching, and then Jimmy stands up at the meeting and speaks for the coach and turns his own personal game around and turns the team around. I think it also gives him a more logical reason for being that hardcore in the coach's corner. And then when you get to the final game and Jimmy's the guy that speaks up and says, I'll make it, you've seen him take more of a journey and you've seen the coach take a journey and the team as a whole, and I think it carries a little bit more emotional weight. But as it stands right now, Jimmy's just always been a great player, and he just rolls in like the Golden Knight on a White Stallion and saves the team. And I think that takes a little bit away from the emotional gravity of the final okay, game. Okay, fair. I never thought of it that way. That's probably an interesting angle on how you could have done the movie. I don't know if I said this way back at the beginning, but I love this movie. I always have. <laughs> I'm a big fan of this movie. I've seen it so many times. It's a cliche in a lot of ways. I don't know if it started the cliche or it adapted the cliche or if it yeah. was one in a long line of the cliche. But having Jimmy speak up, having Jimmy win it, having the team win it in the first place, based on reality, though it is, is a cliche in a sports movie. But I do like the way it goes for the most part because I think you've got to look at the idea that there are things that are off screen. Like you say, there are deleted scenes that they didn't include the film. Mm -hmm. You don't want this movie to be two and a half hours long. No, I think the runtime's actually... Right around two hours. Right around two hours. It's pretty good. It doesn't feel too long, but that's long enough for a sports movie. There's a lot of game action, which I think helps speed Mm -hmm. the movie along. It's not a lot of exposition. Every sports movie needs a montage. There's a lot of those. Yeah, you gotta. It wasn't a big hit, and apparently... Hackman was upset with a lot of it through filming. He sounds like a prickly guy. I've never really heard people badmouth him too badly, but it sounds like he can be tough to work with at times. And he tried to get Anspaugh fired. He thought he was in a dud. (laughs) Nicholson, as in Jack Nicholson, wanted to play Norman, and he couldn't because he was contracted to something else. And he said it would have been a big blockbuster if it had been me in the role because Nicholson is a huge basketball fan. The Lakers and everything, Of course. That would have been an interesting take on the coach. He might have been too domineering, and Hackman... I really, I love Nicholson, my favorite actor ever, but Hackman is probably better suited for this role. I'm not saying he would have been better. I'm saying it would have been super interesting, just that Nicholson voice. I wish I could do a good Nicholson right now. He would not fit in at all. The kind of nasally, (laughs) all right, boys, it's four passes before you shoot the ball. It would have been a really different movie. Did you know Dennis Hopper was in Blue Velvet this same year? And he was nominated for supporting actor for this movie. Jerry Goldsmith's score was also nominated. They didn't win in either category. But Hopper was nominated for this film instead of Blue Velvet. And if you've seen Blue Velvet, I don't know if you have. I have not. No. Okay, between these two movies, and I think he's good in this movie. I think he's really good in this movie. Like you say, the scene with his son. But that's the one he should be nominated for, Blue Velvet. That's the one that's lasted longer in people's minds. People like Hoosiers, but a lot of film buffs especially lionize Blue Velvet. And his mm. performance as a villain, one of the great villains of all time, is Frank Booth in that film. He does a nice thing, too, when he's drunk and stumbles on the court. He got this from Jimmy Dean, an old friend of his. They were buddies before Dean died in that car wreck. Where he stumbles on the court and he's drunk. He spun around before the take so he'd make himself dizzy. Oh, really? These actor studio guys, there's a lot of <laughs> crap with those people. Oh, you got to be so method. But they did invent some things or bring some things That's to good. film you wouldn't have thought of doing. Make yourself dizzy. It's not that hard. Just spin around a few times. 
when you meet the shooter character, he's always wearing that gross, oversized, ratty old jacket, his drunkard's clothes. His top hat. His top hat. He cleans himself up, right? When he's trying to sober up Mm -hmm. for the good of the team, he cleans himself up and you see him in his wing dinger of a suit, I think he describes it as, the one he got married in. When you see him again, now drunk and on the court, he's back in his ratty duds again and he's all disheveled. It's like the coat that symbolizes the monkey on his back. This is who I really am. I can't be the guy in the suit. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a nice little touch, but I didn't know that about the spinorama. He brings a lot of humanity to the movie, obviously. I think we liked him a lot. I like Hackman a lot. I like all the actors. Hackman, Hershey, and Hopper in this movie. I think they all are quite good. The three H's of Hoosiers? Hershey's been working for some like 50 plus years now. Now Uh she's got a new life in horror films, Insidious and Black Swan. Yeah. I mentioned Anspaugh and Pizzo combined on Rudy. Pizzo's only written five movie scripts in 30 years. You'd think that he would be more active in the business because he's written these screenplays that people love Rudy. You say you love Rudy. I didn't really like that movie that much. I haven't seen it in a long time. Maybe I'll like it more if we do cover it next year. Maybe we'll meet in the middle. Maybe you'll like it a little bit more and I'll like it a little <laughs> bit less and we'll just agree. I think they did a pretty decent job of this movie. And then Anspaugh had a tough lead actor in Gene Hackman and he managed to convince him he made a good movie. I don't think Hackman hates the movie now. You've heard actors badmouth movies even when they are successful. Is Hackman still alive, by the way? He's not active since 2004, but he is still alive. He is still alive. Okay. Same age as Connery and Duvall, who are all 88 years old this year. No, and I think also Eastwood is 88 years old this year. I don't think it's out yet. The Mule or whatever. That's to be his last By the time we movie, post this, right? it'll be around that same time. Is that what he's saying? Same he should have ended his career with Gran Torino. Should have been his last on-screen. He could keep directing, but he should have ended his on-screen career with I Gran Torino. I enjoyed Gran well, Torino. Well, the way he goes out, especially. Yeah, so yeah. fitting, especially for the characters he's played in the past. Exactly. And he's now played, I think, three different characters since then, anyway. At least the mule is an age-appropriate role. Oh, yeah. Based he's on playing 90, and he's not even 90. Exactly. He's, he's playing right now. older than yeah, he actually right. is, which is kind of cool. So as for Hoosiers, I mentioned the supporting actor and music score nominations. It was 13th on the top 100 Cheers, so most inspiring. There's a lot of sports movies on that list, not surprisingly. Is it really that high? Maybe a little too high, but I think it's the underdog thing. It's what Merle says. All the little schools never had a chance to get here. Huh, and then, okay. yeah, that's the fixing a relationship with your dad, giving him another chance. And it's the coach who gives him another chance, the coach who gets another chance, the coach who falls in love with a woman who at first doesn't like him, all those kinds of underdog-type stories. I see. And I mentioned it was fourth in the sports category of the top 100 genres. All right, so can you score up this movie? No. No. It's... You can't do that around these boys either. No, you can't no, drink no, no, no. and you can't... Has this been a clean episode? It has. So you can't score and you can't do the other thing. No, I agree <laughs> with that. We've been clean. I've been playing the devil's advocate to a certain degree here because I know how much you like this movie mm-hmm. and I don't want it to be just a love fest. I'm a sap for this film, yeah. Yeah, well, we all have those movies that for all its flaws, perceived or otherwise, we just love and we can't help it, yeah. right? And I do really like this movie. And if you want to talk about scoring at it, you're right. You ain't scoring at this movie. Not very inspirational that way. (laughs) But this movie does score. It hits the emotional notes that it's meant to hit. And maybe 32 years ago, it was just a different landscape as far as screenwriting and audience expectation goes. We've seen so many knockoffs or homages to this kind of thing. So maybe that's part of the reason why I feel the way about aspects of this movie that I do now. It does really speak to the emotional resonance of those moments. The final game is an emotional moment. Mm. Even though I'm not entirely convinced it's 100% earned, that final moment with the shot of the team and Gene Hackman and the audio overlay of I love you guys and then it fades to black. And the Hopper moment will always be one of the most touching things, for me personally anyway, in sports movies. It's a very good movie, and I don't want it to sound like I'm slagging it too hard, because I do really enjoy it, and I do think it's very good. And I mean, it got the nominations it got for reasons. It's not a bad movie by any stretch. And we both talked about how much we admire the performances of Hackman and Hopper in this movie, amongst the entire cast. So, 
I just want to set the record straight a little bit so I don't get too many angry comments sent my way at my non-existent Twitter account. I would have nominated for Best Picture and maybe Best Director and some other things that year. How was the beer? The beer is light and refreshing and thirst quenching, right? Mm-hmm. Late afternoon on a Monday, we're recording this podcast. Chris happened to get the day off, and I was off anyway with my weird work schedule. <laughs> yeah, I try not to make too much of a habit of actually drinking <laughs> on the job or recording podcasts on the job for that matter. All right. Before we get to the end, two notes on this episode. One, I didn't finish the point about the scene where the town wants to vote Norm out and the whole team has to wait outside. This meeting directly affects all of them, but they don't even get to be in the room. That's one reason that scene gets me. I think that's great writing, great directing. You don't count, really, guys. It's what the adults want. The other note is that we're changing the movie we'll be covering on December 27th from what we said in the original recording. We'll push that movie back a few more weeks. We want to cover this one instead. So in two weeks, we'll be scoring at the movies for the 15th time. So it's high time we covered our first boxing flick. Everyone else was talking about this one back in November and early December. We're really on the cutting edge here, aren't we? And that's because of Creed Two. But now it's our turn to analyze the terrifying highs, the dizzying lows, and the creamy middles of the wonderfully stupid Rocky IV. All right, well then, I am TopOneOurProject.com, the website, of course, as always, at MovieFiend51 on Twitter. Please tweet me, because that's fun, and why not? Talk about movies, talk about sports, talk about religion, talk about politics. Any of those things is fine. And do not try to contact Chris, because he Incommunicado. knows lawyers, and he will sue your ass for that kind of stuff. Maybe as a Christmas gift, I'll establish a shared Twitter account okay. for scoring at the movies. We were recording this really early in December, by the way. So yeah. yes, happy post-Christmas, and happy early New Year to all of our listeners. So we'll see. And before we sign off, Ryan, I have a total non-sequitur question for you, but I have to ask it, and maybe this will be my thing going forward, is I'll intersperse entirely unrelated content into the podcast at some point. All right. In your opinion, is the greatest single lyric in any modern rock song the line, Bustin' makes me feel good? Can you top that line of dialogue? That is truly a non sequitur. <laughs> I was trying to see where this is going with Hoosiers. It's going nowhere. Nowhere at all. Bustin' makes me feel good. Aside from the fact that it popped up in an 80s movie, can you top it is my question to you. I don't think you can. And I've given this a lot of thought over the last A lot of things by the hours. Beatles is probably better. A lot of things by my favorite band, The Hip. Probably better. Disagree. Yet. Well, I'll challenge you to come up with a better lyric I'll think for about it for next podcast. Next podcast. In 2019. <laughs> Sorry, it'll still be 2018. That's right. All right, take her easy, dudes. I know that you will.